You're listening to a Podglomerate original. In the spring of 2018, Dan Mallory's debut novel was unavoidable. It's the stuff that authors dream of, having their book picked up and turned into a Hollywood movie. It's incredible. The author zipped around the globe on a multi-city book tour, charming audiences with his megawatt smile, swift wit, and refreshing vulnerability during Q&As. When I wrote the book, and this is the truth, this is not false modesty, I had no ambitions beyond tapping out the words, the end, at the conclusion. Before the age of 40, Dan Mallory would rise up the ranks, maneuvering his way into a successful career. Listen, I didn't get to this place in my career overnight. The traditional path to becoming a successful writer is full of twists and turns, meetings and drafts, and a lot of rejections. It took me almost 20 years of writing, networking, and finding my way in the industry to become a respected literary critic. Dan's star soared as an executive editor in addition to a handful of other jobs, and then as a best-selling author in less than half that time. Now, it's not impossible in publishing to achieve so much in so short a time, but it isn't the norm and it raises some red flags. Dan didn't want to wait. I'm not sure what the secret ingredient is. I'm just lucky that my book has connected with millions of readers. And are you gonna do your next book? Scattered along the trail to the top, there was one unfounded claim after another. From false cancer diagnoses, to lies of admissions surrounding his education, to tragic but ultimately untrue family deaths. And I'd never written a script before. They instead got a Pulitzer-winning playwright. I don't have a Pulitzer. Wow. Yet, yet. yet. That's exactly right. And as the facts eventually bubbled to the surface, you'd think the ground beneath Dan Mallory's feet would begin to crumble. He's now admitting to lying about his past, including... That he would, or the industry would, brace itself for the oncoming avalanche. Some are calling him a con artist, but Mallory, who's now apologizing, claims it's mental illness. What should someone do if they're caught in an avalanche? Pretend to swim? Do nothing. Or as Dan's publisher did, issue a statement that said they would not comment on the personal lives of their authors or employees with hopes that it would blow over. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to Missing Pages. I'm your host, longtime literary critic and publishing world insider, Beth Ann Patrick. You can find me tweeting about books, my dog, and G&Ts on Twitter, at The Book Maven. In season one of Missing Pages, I'll be your guide as we look back at some of the most iconic, jaw-dropping, and just truly bizarre book scandals to shape the publishing world. In every episode, we re-examine the headlines and go behind the scenes to give you the unabridged industry story we all missed the first time around. Because isn't there always a page that gets cut from the final draft? 
On that note, let's find the missing pages together on today's episode, The Good Liar. Chapter One, The Golden Boy. Dan Mallory was riding high. So let's get this straight. You're a critically acclaimed author for your very first debut novel. You're a millionaire. You're incredibly handsome. Go on. In the lead up to The Woman in the Windows release, Dan revealed his true identity to participate in promotional press. This is when details about his personal life first emerged to a broader audience. I'm actually, as Daniel Mallory, quite a private person and and disinclined to chat. But uh, as AJ Finn, I can talk about literally everything. AJ Finn does not shut up. Writer and journalist Jessica Crispin, who reports on power dynamics in the publishing world, covered the story of Dan Mallory. The primary requirement of an entry-level position in publishing that you have to come from resources of some means in order to survive the process of making your way into publishing. Dan Mallory certainly grew up as a person of means. He started building the right kind of resume from a young age. You can't just like wander your way in in the way that it used to be. Dan Mallory was a high-level editor at a prestigious publisher in New York City and had the path to that job that one would expect in that he worked at Little Brown in London, and then before that, Ballantyne in New York City. He had on his resume several degrees, including a PhD from Oxford and undergrad at Duke. So a very sort of traditional expected pathway into publishing from, you know, 18 years old on. Dan received the kind of top-notch education that opens doors. But it wasn't all smooth sailing for the Mallorys. When Dan Mallory was at Oxford, he wrote an essay about the hardship that he had endured, that his mother had died of cancer and he nursed her through that experience. His brother had cystic fibrosis. His father was dead of some undetermined cause. Despite all of this tragedy, Dan would persevere. While he never published the essay about his personal losses and hardships, this backstory built important professional bridges, which launched him into an illustrious publishing career. He worked for Sphere Books in London, an imprint of Little Brown. He was a vice president and executive editor at William Morrow & Company in New York. He claimed to have a doctorate from Oxford. He also regaled people with stories of working with big-time celebrity writers. But Dan Mallory's life wasn't without more hardship. His professors and colleagues were stunned to learn that various absences were due to a brain tumor he was battling. In 2011, a colleague recalled Mallory saying he was even considering a visit to Dignitas, an assisted death facility in Switzerland, saying the prognosis was not good and that he might only have a few years left to live. Years later, in 2015, Dan, appearing to have survived brain cancer, opened up about his mental health challenges with bipolar 2 disorder. And and the best part of this entire adventure, even better than the money and the bestseller lists and the movie and traveling the world, is the opportunity to make the most of this platform to speak about mental health. Because it's under-discussed, it's unjustly stigmatized. If, if I'm addressing the audience here, if you suffer from mental health issues, there's nothing wrong with you. You just need a steer. 
His message was clear. Although he suffered from loss and depression and lived with a bipolar 2 diagnosis, he was a success. And it was refreshing, inspiring even, for someone so high up in the book publishing world to be this vulnerable and share a less than perfect biography. She, she struggles with depression, which is something I've struggled with my entire adult life. And in combating it, she resorts to alcohol and drug abuse, which, as you say, is, is a real issue, a proper epidemic in the country right now. So I, I didn't have that in mind when, when endowing her with these problems, but it's topical. <laughs> you know, in, in the world of sports journalism, that is known as a walk-off home run. That ball is high. It is far. It is good! So in 2018, when his novel led book sales and was a runaway hit, this was an especially sweet triumph for a man who had endured so much. And as Jessa points out, across the publishing industry, authors with traumatic backstories often make for great marketing. I would like to place the blame for trauma entertainment on Oprah's feet. Wow, wow, and I can't even express how excited I am about the announcement of this book. I think that that kind of material definitely sort of just trained us to expect these tales of woe, to expect these tales of trauma, and told us how to formulate them. Mallory's publisher went all out with marketing the book. It wasn't so much that I was paying attention to it because it was an important book. I was paying attention to it because it was in all of the airports and the front uh, tables at bookstores, and it was unavoidable for a while. The book is a prickly psychological thriller told from the perspective of an unreliable narrator who believes she's witnessed a murder, an agoraphobic who enjoys her wine. Anna works with her psychiatrist to decipher what's real and what's in her mind. In this interview clip, Mallory even shares how the experience of switching psychiatric meds one summer evening served as inspiration for the book's main character. In July and August, the publishing industry in which I worked shuts down. So I got to spend about six weeks on the couch titrating off my old meds and titrating onto new ones. And so one night I was parked on my sofa watching Rear Window. First you smash your leg, then you get to looking out the window. See things you shouldn't see? In my peripheral vision, I saw a light flicker. And across the street in this beautiful townhome, a woman had turned on her light. And so I'm watching her. And then I look back at the screen where Jimmy Stewart is watching Raymond Burr. And I thought, <laughs> how funny that 60 years on, I'm doing exactly the same thing. Voyeurism is timeless. <laughs> and it occurred to me that there might be a story here. In this interview, Dan Mallory gives a dizzying recollection of where the inspiration for his novel came from. As you listen you'll notice how the story is a bit nonsensical, but also simultaneously charming. In the book, we learn that something has befallen Anna, something terrible, and she's having trouble dealing with it. She is aggrieved, she is housebound, she's unable to leave. And at numerous points during my depression, I was unable to prize myself from bed, let alone leave the house. So between my, my experience, my corrective experience with depression and the influence and inspiration of Jimmy Stewart, Rear Window, Hitchcock, and Film Noir more broadly, this, this sort of sloshed together in my head and took shape quite quickly. See, this is exactly what I love about books. You start in one place and then you wind up somewhere completely unexpected. 
The novelist was forced to come clean after a profile in The New Yorker accused him of a large swath of lies surrounding his career and medical history. Maybe Anna Fox, the protagonist in The Woman in the Window, had the right idea. Something's not adding up. A former colleague told the outlet, My God, I knew I'd get this call. I didn't know if it would be you or the FBI. Like Anna, we need to separate the facts from the fiction. I mean, this is the book world after all. How did people learn that uh, these were just a, a string of lies? So we know that Dan's own mental health treatment served as inspiration for the novel, and this got me thinking about the mental health angle. What other diagnoses might lead somebody to lie and deceive for decades? When we come back, I consult the professionals. Chapter 2, Dan's Undoing. Here I am talking to not one, but two psychiatrists. Psychiatrist practicing well, I've been in the private practice of psychiatry for about four decades. My specialty I treat basically is... The doctors could not speak in specifics about a patient they've never personally treated. The two agreed to weigh in with what they do know. You have a patient like Dan Mallory, someone from a privileged background who lost multiple immediate family members at a young age, someone who has faced terminal health scares personally, along with mental health challenges like bipolar 2 disorder. What would you make of them? First, I would say, for me, would raise the fact that he has so many difficulties, problems in his life with so many losses, that for me would raise a red flag. We've all told a lie. It's a common human phenomenon. But it's also actually a critical part of our development, says one of our experts. We use the term pathological lying, suggesting that there's also kind of non-pathological lying. That uh, I'll say uh, we all deceive others and ourselves in our everyday life throughout the throughout the day and uh, it often facilitates maintaining good relationships with other people with uh, spouses lovers friends etc and learning to lie uh, by toddlers and small children is a developmental step actually when the child can first uh, tell a lie it uh, realizes that uh, it has a mind separate from its mother and father, that they cannot read their thoughts as we think the child thinks early on. However, in Pseudologia Fantastica, a pathological form of lying, the patient lies not to avoid painful consequences, but rather to obtain internal reward or gratification. In 2019, Ian Parker released a long and well-researched profile on Dan Mallory for The New Yorker. It was a 10,000-word piece called A Suspense Novelist's Trail of Deceptions. Do you know how rare it is for The New Yorker to spend 10,000 words on a debut novelist? It just doesn't happen. To unravel how the magazine figured it all out, we met, of course, with the article's fact-checker. My name is Camila Osorio. I'm a reporter from Colombia. I am the fact checker of the Dan Mallory article that was published at the beginning of 2019. Camila Osorio is now a culture correspondent at the Spanish language newspaper El Pais. 
But in early 2019, she was given three weeks to fact-check a liar's falsified biography. Even for The New Yorker, a magazine known for its rigorous fact-checking process, this story was a doozy. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a challenge for a fact-checker because it's, it's, uh, it's not, let's say, a book review where you can just, like, see the book and see if it actually says what the book review is saying. In this case, there's a list of lies and you have to figure out, like, okay, how do I make sure that this is a lie? And also, how do I make sure that this is a lie given that the author doesn't want to talk to the reporter, the editor, and then the fact checker? So normally what you have to do in those cases is try to find more than one source for each of the lies. Or if some of the lies are documented in emails, for example, or in videos, then just try to check as much of those documents. And that was, that was the challenge of this piece. There's a lot of accusations of lying, so how do, how do we put it in the piece? This was the first time Camila had checked a piece for Ian Parker, an award-winning journalist known for developing and writing complex profiles. Ian Parker. <laughs> I mean, Ian Parker is a legend inside and outside The New Yorker. It turns out the article, which went viral upon its release in February 2019, was a whole year in the making, complete with in-person encounters with the very much still alive mother of Dan Mallory and long pauses of disbelief on phone calls with his once sympathetic professors back at Oxford an institution from which he never graduated due to a series of serious medical issues that could not be proven. And to set the record straight, here's Jessica Crispin again, listing out all the lies that came to light about Dan Mallory's life. I have a list. <laughs> he claimed to have agoraphobia. He pretended to have a doctor from Oxford. He pretended to have a doctor in psychology. He pretended like he his did. mother died from breast cancer. His brother both died of cystic fibrosis and suicide. And the father, again, died of unspecified then causes. Then he claimed himself to have an inoperable brain tumor. And he also claimed to have a tumor on his spine. Then he had a fake British accent. <laughs> and he pretended to be dog-sitting when he wasn't dog-sitting as a way of explaining why he didn't show up to a meeting. The woman in the window appears to be his own work, but even that plot is suspiciously similar to a 1995 movie starring Sigourney Weaver called Copycat, which is also a film based on a book. I will leave the irony of that film title for our plagiarism episode. Then there's Dan's tragic family stories and academic accolades, which could not be verified. His mother is still alive and well, and so is his brother. Dan was never the victim of a brain tumor, and he doesn't have any doctorates either. The whole thing, Mallory claimed, resulted from his bipolar II disorder, which he had been diagnosed with relatively recently. But the lies are so deep and go so far back that it's not clear whether a bipolar II diagnosis would lead to compulsive lying. And for Camila, this was particularly tough to fact check. The hardest part was the one that had to do with bipolar disorder too, which is not a lie that he was diagnosed by that. And one of the things that came out in the checking process is actually that a therapist that he was seeing confirmed that, that he had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder too. 
The hard thing about that part is that, and we quote two experts in psychiatry on this, is that bipolar disorder 2 doesn't explain that you will end up creating a world of lies. This is not a symptom of bipolar disorder 2. So what was hard on that is, and this happens in a lot of reporting that has to do with psychiatry, is that it's hard for psychiatrists to be on the record on somebody they haven't seen in their offices. There's a lot of frustrating things about the Dan Mallory story, but the detail that irked everyone we talked to the most, the author's willingness to scapegoat bipolar II disorder as a tidy explanation for behavior orchestrated for his own personal, professional, and financial gains. During his time at Ballantyne, where he spoke openly and often about his dissatisfaction with his employer, did Bipolar II excuse unexplained spending on Amazon charged to the corporate American Express card? Or using his boss's computer after hours? Or that his colleagues thought he was likely the one leaving plastic cups of urine around the office? Ah, the cups of urine. I mean, actually, it's interesting. That was not one of the most difficult parts of the piece to check. You would think it would. But I think there were very firm sources confirming. For the record, Mallory denies leaving those cups. But once he was gone, they ceased to appear. Does Bipolar 2 explain the lies getting even more bizarre when he was hired at William Morrow, the eventual publisher of his novel? And when co-workers started receiving emails claiming to be from Dan's brother, remember the dead one? Some grew suspicious that these messages were sent from Dan himself. One to his former English department colleagues at Oxford and one to his new New York colleagues at Morrow. Those in England received word that Mallory was having a tumor removed. Those in New York learned the tumor was on his spine. Recipients wrote back to him in genuine distress. In this interview, Parker shares that the emails were obviously written by Mallory. Somebody showed me the emails supposedly written by Dan Mallory's brother, Jake. He, it's exactly the same voice. And so I thought, this is interesting. This, this seems clear to me that he is impersonating his own brother to kind of, um, I don't know, accentuate his, his story of, of personal suffering. Mallory's web of deceit seemed to be spinning tighter and tighter, but who would face the consequences? It's really difficult to figure out why someone would just pile untruth on top of untruth. An essay that Dan wrote in high school claims that, from a young age, Dan's mother, Pamela Mallory, encouraged her son to leverage stories of suffering and adversity for personal gain. Mrs. Mallory did, in fact, have cancer during Dan's high school years. While that bout of cancer did not result in her tragic death, Dan's article from his school paper claims that his mother suggested that he capitalize on her illness. In 1999, when Mallory was a sophomore in college, he wrote an article entitled, Take Full Advantage of Suffering, which, in retrospect, may be seen as a kind of mission statement for the next 14 years of his career. Second, there's Dan's fascination with Patricia Highsmith and the Tom Ripley novels, which are about a charming and brilliant imposter. You may recall the talented Mr. Ripley, which was turned into a 1999 movie starring Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Jude Law. 
What did you actually do in New York? Telling lies, forging signatures, uh, impersonating practically anybody. That book and film follow around Tom Ripley, a cunning huckster from a lower socioeconomic position who charms the elites. But somewhere along the way, it seems Dan Mallory misinterpreted the message Highsmith was sending in the Ripley novels. Unlike Tom Ripley, who tricked the aristocracy into believing he was a member of their ranks and got the reader to root for him, Dan Mallory's game missed the memo about classism. Mallory was a person of means, earning the sympathy of people who were willing to extend their connections. He was a man lying about his plight to climb up the corporate ladder. Here's Jessa again, talking about how even though Dan studied 20th century detective fiction with a focus on Highsmith, he seemed to miss the lesson. Dan Mallory stated that the the thing that he likes about Patricia Highsmith is that uh, Patricia Highsmith persuades us to root for the sociopaths. And that's not what she's doing. Like, Patricia Highsmith is showing that all of us are capable of doing hideous things. And you root for Ripley, you root for the con man in these books because they are class warriors, basically. I mean, they're not doing for for like a great cause. And the thing that I find objectionable then about Dan Mallory is he's not a class warrior. He's in, he comes from money. You could spend countless hours trying to figure out why Dan Mallory would lie so much to so many people about such horrible things. But one thing is visible, even at first glance. The holes that his story exposed in publishing probably won't be going away anytime soon. Here's Ian again, talking about why he's pessimistic about the prospects of things changing in publishing. Will anything change? Uh, um, no. <laughs> I just bank not. Despite his many deceptions, Dan Mallory still benefits from book publishing, an ironic twist worthy of a thriller villain. After the break, we'll reckon with some hard truths about the publishing industry. Chapter 3, The Hard Truth About Publishing, or A Lot of Lies and One Truth. Here's why we should be angry about what Dan Mallory did. He never seemed to take a sidestep in his career. He never seemed to account for his lies. He always seemed to be on the rise. Certainly, we all know of people juicing up stories and maybe we're guilty of it in some ways ourselves, but Dan wasn't telling harmless white lies. He told serious lies that manipulated others and deployed them at key moments where he stood to gain the most. His thesis, to always take advantage of suffering, is already tacitly callous. But to invent suffering to take advantage? Well, that takes misconduct to a whole new level. And there were no real consequences for Dan's bad behavior, only rewards. I'm often asked, because I am a former publisher, I left my job at the end of last year because I got rich. <laughs> As you would. Even following the reveal that Mallory had confabulated his way into the book publishing world's highest ranks, his publisher and former employer, William Morrow, issued this comment. 
we do not comment on the personal lives of our authors or employees, which left a lot unsaid. Here's Ian Parker sharing his outrage and frustration with the publisher's response back in 2019. You know, even though they know that, and even though they now know a lot more from reading my piece, that there is no embarrassment on the part of his publisher. If you go to the HarperCollins website, AJ Finn has written for numerous publications, which isn't true, written for a few. Uh, so in other words, it's pitching him as a, as a writer, not as a, it's just, it's an, it's an odd thing. Huh. This is not the kind of response you'd hope for from overeducated leaders in an industry predicated on expanding one's worldview through reading. Unfortunately, like every other industry in America, book publishing is not exempt from the biases born out of a system that protects the white, the male, and the overeducated. Publishing is an industry that working class people and people of color struggle to get through the door of, let alone stay there. Dan Mallory didn't invent this, and we're not saying he was personally trying to keep others out. But he was particularly adept at building and consolidating power at the highest rungs of the publishing industry, then exploiting its pre-existing conditions for his own advancement. It's important to remember that what Dan did was more than just take advantage of the system for his own benefit. Dan's exploitative behavior, in turn, may actually have removed opportunities for other writers who didn't have the same access to or understanding of the system as he did. Instead of focusing on a privileged white guy who took advantage of systemic inequalities, how about we meet a writer and artist whose path differs greatly from Mallory's? Hi, I'm Luis Alberto Urrea, and I've been a writer for a really long time. That's my buddy, Luis Alberto Urrea. We've known each other for more than a decade. We met at some literary summit or another back in 2006 and have kept up ever since. I remember drinking those those lime Rickies somewhere. Hop-toed Rickies. Hop-toed. Where was that? That was at the Tabard Inn. Luis's career is nothing short of impressive. He's a member of the Latino Literature Hall of Fame and was a 2005 Pulitzer Prize finalist for nonfiction. With 17 books under his belt, Luis has snapped up numerous awards for poetry, fiction, essays, and journalism that verges on activism. I think the book that broke it open for me was The Devil's Highway. And uh, you couldn't have gotten a more macho, freaking cis male, you know, cisgendered male, white, thing than me with the Border Patrol. I've always known Luis as a successful, accomplished writer. I never thought about how our paths might have differed when we were starting out. I started out at a private liberal arts college where big publishing imprints recruited on campus. I had a job secured at one of those imprints before I'd even graduated. So when I talked to Luis last February, I thought, let me ask him what it was like for him in the beginning. I had to do this book. So uh, I I wrote it and I showed it to a friend's agent and it was rejected immediately. I rewrote it, showed it to the agent. He turned it down. I rewrote it a third time and he said, hey, that's pretty interesting. And we began submitting. Ten years of sub- submitting the same book. 
Luis's story would be incomplete without the mentorship of visiting workshop professor, the great Ursula K. Le Guin. And I'm sure you know this too, but my discoverer was Ursula Le Guin, right? And she was my trainer. Through this weird miracle that I still don't quite understand, I was hired. I didn't even, I only had a BA, but I was starting to publish little things, including the story Ursula put in her in an anthology. And I got an offer to teach expository writing at Harvard. Back in the 70s, a lot was different about the publishing biz, but a lot remains the same. I was told by another, always in writing, I never had a conversation. The quote was, no reader in the United States is going to read a book by a person with a name as weird as yours. So what you need to do is have one Anglo name and then your ethnic name. And Luis would enter into writing communities aware of his privilege. Lately, there's a thing that I'm just starting to see come up. And I think, I wonder what they're going to say about me, because now they're talking about white passing Latinx people. That's a bad thing. I was like, well, if I'd had my choice, I wanted to be brown. There's layers to how privileges can afford opportunities in publishing. I don't believe that it's the product of some evil plot or white supremacy or anything else, but... You know, when you're in when you're in a pickle barrel, you start tasting like the pickle, right? So if you're in <laughs> if you're in the pickle barrel of elite New York glass and steel skyscraper publishing, surrounded by white folks who are Ivy Leaguers or whatever it is, you know, it'd be great to have more African American editors. It'd be great to have some good rasa. I'd like I'd love to see Juan Felipe Herrera become a major editor, but he's too busy being wonderful. While Dan Mallory took advantage of the holes in the system, Luis's work looked to repair injustices. I think you're going to see more and more of us, whoever we are, queer people, you know, God bless women who are very powerful in publishing, um, people of color. You know, this this is happening. Imagine facing the challenges Luis did, losing his father at a young age to senseless violence and discovering how to carry that grief into his work rather than being paralyzed by its sadness. As a product of California public education, Luis entered overwhelmingly white and elite academic spaces as a fair-skinned Latino man. And while he passed in appearance, Literary agents also encouraged him to think about maybe using a more Americanized pen name. And even though the publishing industry around him didn't think it was an easy or fast route to success, Luis stayed authentic. And I I believe the letter suggested I could be known as L-E-W-I-S, maybe. (laughs) Hey, Luis, how are you, Luis? I'm good. I'm good. Well, you know, those things, those things weighed on me. And... You know, back to back to the core of me, you know, Le Guin. Le Guin, she came right after my father was killed. She came to, as, a, as a visiting workshop leader, and she did a lot of really radical stuff. In publishing, a profession staffed by people who fit a traditional mold, Luis owned being an outsider, and it paid off. The reason you are intimidated is because somebody has control of something that 
you feel you really need. Unfortunately, because we're writers, a lot of that is our own identity. We're judging ourselves as human beings by our acceptance by these strangers. I think the Latinx writing community, there's a, still a kind of a war to just storm the Bastille or something, take the Alamo, you know, and get our work out there. Mallory, on the other hand, he spotted these issues. And rather than using his intelligence, talent, and privilege to try and fix them, he weaponized them to accelerate his own career. So, was this really a victimless crime? No. Dan Mallory's actions sowed distrust in every place he worked and put him in positions of power that he may not have earned, actually amplifying systemic injustices in publishing. When power goes unchecked in any industry, there are victims. These are the people who never get the same opportunities that someone like Dan did. So you're probably wondering, where is Dan now? As recently as a few months ago, he was posting to Instagram about Netflix's The Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window, a satirical miniseries starring everyone's favorite, uh, Kristen hi, Bell. I'm Anna. The truth is that I drink a lot, and sometimes I mix it with pills. And I'm here because I woke up this morning convinced I'd witnessed a murder. Released by Netflix in January 2022, the comedy directly spoofed both the plot of Dan's best-selling novel and perhaps more insidiously, weaved some of his notorious pathological lies, almost like Easter eggs, into the show's story. For example, when Kristen Bell's character randomly and hilariously fakes a British accent. My husband used to tell me that I have an overactive imagination, that I drink too much, that I can't let go of the past, that I make plans and cancel them, that I never wear a jacket but then complain that I'm cold. That sometimes I speak with a British accent, even though I'm not British. He's right about all of it. That's why he left me. Makes you wonder if this was inspired by Dan Mallory's pretentious eccentricities. Hmm. From what a cursory Google search shows, Dan is still slated to release a second book as part of his initial deal. And he's most likely still sitting on millions of dollars from his advance and his book sales, based in large part on the resources his publisher, which, as you know, was also his previous employer, put behind the book. Who knows what other opportunities he's pursuing these days? Does a book sell well because it's well-written and engaging? Or because a publisher puts their time, money, and resources into the promotion? Is this a chicken or the egg kind of question? Honestly, I don't know. But what I do know is, if a book sells well, then the publisher and the author turn a profit. Other than the bombshell New Yorker article by Ian Parker and the momentary social media outrage it inspired, there haven't been any real consequences for our dear Dan. In a lot of cases, it's easy to say, who cares, and feel jaded. But there are thousands of people like Luis out there. 
and the Dan Mallory's of the world and the apathetic publishing executives? Well, by failing to publicly condemn Dan Mallory's bad behavior, current and future Luis Urea's may face even more hurdles to shine through in publishing. And if you're like me, and you love books and the people who make them, something about all of this shouldn't sit right. We may not be able to put a proper name to one of Dan's victims, but he keeps signing his name on checks and the publishing industry, they keep cashing them. You're incredibly handsome. Go on. (laughs) Get off my TV I asked folks which writers tend to write themselves into their characters. Guess who came up? Patricia Highsmith. One tweeter felt she was Tom Ripley in real life. Interesting. Is Dan Mallory actually the woman in the window? Or is his sense of self so splintered we will never really know? A journalist recently said to me, oh, are you sort of like Tom Ripley? No, I've killed like two people. He's killed seven. So there's a key distinction. As for me, I'm done with this guy. It's time to close the book on these missing pages. If you love juicy mystery novels, but would prefer to support an author who's not morally corrupt, as far as we know, try reading these page turners. It came up a lot in this episode, but if you like the classics, definitely check out the talented Mr. Ripley series by Patricia Highsmith. After 70 years on the shelf, readers are still fascinated by anti-hero Tom Ripley's willingness to do just about anything to live the high life. Sounds a lot like someone we know. Do you like the big city setting? Try Alyssa Cole's When No One Is Watching. Like The Woman in the Window, it's another book about bad behavior in the brownstones. But we're relieved to say the author is no Dan Mallory. Come for the suspense, stay for the social commentary on race, gentrification, and life in the city today. Finally, let's pop across the pond for some Euro suspense. Check out The White City by Carolina Romkvist for a Swedish view of an isolated woman being stalked by her ex. Missing Pages is a podglomerate original and is written and produced by a small army. Showrunner, Kayla Lippman. Producer, researcher, and writer, Jordan Aaron. Producer, Matt Keeley. Production, mixing, and mastering by Chris Boniello. Fact-checking by Kathleen Henriquez. Legal review by Alexia Bedat and Louise Caron at Claris Law. Marketing by Joni Deutsch, Morgan Swift, and Madison Richards. Social media by Sylvia Butel. Art by Tom Grillo. Production and hosting by me, Bethann Patrick. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. Special thanks to Dan Christo, Camila Osorio, Jessica Crispin, our two expert psychiatrists, Luis Urea and Ian Parker. We have included links to a lot of the background stories we used for this episode in the show notes. You can learn more about Missing Pages at thepodglomerate.com, on Twitter at Miss Pages Pod, and on Instagram at Missing Pages Pod, 
or you can email us at missingpages at thepodglomerate.com. Listen to Missing Pages on Amazon Music or wherever you find podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please let your friends and family know and suggest an episode for them to listen to. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, and we'll be back next week with another episode.